Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to see you here this morning. I hope everyone's having a good weekend so far. I also want to say hello and good morning to those of you watching online. Um, well, I don't know about you, but I, I just thought we had a great uh, Easter weekend last weekend, starting with our Stations of the Cross event on Friday, on Good Friday, and then the three services that we had here on Easter Sunday. And so hopefully whether you watched online or came in person, you were able to engage with us as we celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus. But uh, as Chris just said, today we are going to jump back into our series through the book of Proverbs called The Grounded Life. Um, but before we get going here, let me just... Open us up in a, a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I agree. Thank you that your presence is here, that you're moving. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know and to obey you. And so we just pray, Lord, that right now you would open the scriptures to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I've shared this with you before, but I've always loved the subject of history. Um, it was by far the subject that I enjoyed the most while in school. Um, like I would even take electives on it, you know, the kind of thing where like you didn't have to, but I, I wanted to because I enjoyed it that much and wanted to learn more. Um, but after becoming a Christian at the age of 19, I uh, continued to love American and world history, but I also discovered a whole new genre or category known as church history. And so as a, a new believer, I just started eating up all of these biographies about well-known Christians and missionaries and, and, and again, throughout the, the history of the church. Um, I even took a couple of church history classes while in college. And uh, so because of that, I have a decent knowledge or a decent base when it comes to church history. Uh, however, though, I came across a story this week about a guy I'd never heard of named St. Lawrence. Now, St. Lawrence was one of seven deacons in the church at Rome during the third century. And as some of you probably know, in those first couple centuries after uh, Christ's life, uh, the, the church endured all kinds of horrendous violence and persecution from the Roman Empire. And one particular Roman emperor who was a pretty nasty guy was a guy by the name of Valerian. And in the year 258 AD, he initiated a massive persecution against the church. And as part of that, he ordered that all Christian leaders, including deacons and bishops, be killed. And so he started by first killing the Bishop of Rome, which uh, the Catholic tradition would refer to as Pope Sixtus II. And then after that, he ordered that St. Lawrence, one of these seven deacons, he ordered him to bring all of the church's possessions and money and surrender them to, uh, to the Roman Empire. Well, St. Lawrence, he negotiated with the, uh, with the Roman emperor to give him three days in order to gather up all the treasures of the church. And so Valerian uh, consented to that and gave him three days. Well, instead of gathering up the church's money and material possessions, St. Lawrence instead gathered up some of the poorest and weakest members of the church, including some who were blind and lame. And on that third day when he arrived and the Roman emperor asked him where the wealth and the treasures of the church were, St. Lawrence responded by pointing to these uh, members and saying, here, emperor, here are the treasures of the church. Well, as you might guess, the Roman emperor was not impressed. In fact, he was outraged. And according to church tradition, Valerian had Lawrence roasted on a massive gridiron. Now, certainly his death, and it's gruesome and it's hard to think about. But the thing that struck me this week in this story with St. Lawrence was his perspective and his attitude towards the poor and the weak. 
You see, on the one hand, I think he was trying to stick it to the Roman emperor, but on the other hand, I think he really did believe what he said. That being that the treasures of the church are its weakest and most vulnerable members. And yet as I think about the American church and even as I think about my own heart and my own life, I'm not sure that our attitudes and our actions towards the poor would reflect that. You see, unfortunately, I think all too often here in America, we've let our political differences and opinions and also a theological compromise, like what we saw with the, the liberal mainline denominations in the 20th century, we've let some of those things cloud and influence both our attitudes and our actions towards the poor and the vulnerable. However, though, by and large, historically, the church has understood that care for the poor is a matter of biblical obedience. You see, I have this really interesting book on my, sh uh, on my bookshelf back in my office by the late D. James Kennedy called, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And in it, Kennedy talks about all of the ways that our world has been changed for the better through the influence of Christianity. And in one of the chapters, he talks about the church's role in caring for the poor. And in that chapter, what you see is that historically, the church has been on the front lines and has been the main source of compassion and care for the poor in our world. In fact, Kennedy talks about how uh, the early church's care and concern for the poor was virtually unheard of in the Roman world. And because of that, it left a major impression and was a large factor in, in people turning to Jesus and being drawn towards Christianity, which funny enough, really annoyed the Roman leaders, which is why the Roman emperor Julian the Apostate, he famously complained. He said, these impious Galileans, they feed not only their own poor, but ours as well. And he was just like annoyed by that. Like, what are they doing? They're feeding not only their own poor, but ours. Now, it wasn't just the early church, but again, if you look throughout church history, what you see is that up until the 20th century, the church had always had a concern for the poor, whether it was the monks in the Middle Ages or the Puritans later on, or even during the 19th century with people like William and Catherine Booth who started the Salvation Army or George Mueller or Charles Spurgeon who started orphanages in England. Again, the church has had a rich history and legacy in this regard. However, though, things got a little bit messed up, particularly here in America during the 20th century. Because as I alluded to earlier, the, the liberal mainline denominations and churches, they started compromising on all kinds of things theologically, and they were having all kinds of, of issues and you know, not denying parts of the Bible and all of that. But one main area of compromise was they started separating out evangelism from social concern. And this gave rise to what some have called uh, or referred to as the social gospel. Now the social gospel is basically where you're just trying to help someone out physically with no intention of ever helping them out spiritually by pointing them to Jesus. And so what happened was uh, because of that, conservative theologians and conservative churches, they overreacted and they began to compromise and they began to by and large ignore people's physical needs. And instead, they solely focused on the spiritual by just sharing the gospel. Now, certainly between the two, that one is more important. However, though, it's really hard to listen to a gospel presentation when your stomach is growling. And not only that, but as we turn to the Bible, as we turn to the scriptures, we see that both are commanded and both are necessary. 
In fact, this week was probably the, the first time that I've ever really in any kind of major way studied out what the Bible has to say about care for the poor, and I was just blown away by how much it talks about it. That's why Jonathan Edwards, the, uh, the pastor in New England who was a catalyst for the Great Awakening, who many would argue was America's greatest theologian, he once said this. He said, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms and in a more peremptory, I can't say that, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? Not only can I not say it, but I didn't know what it meant, so I had to get out my dictionary, and here's what that word means. It basically means beyond doubt or non-debatable. In other words, what Jonathan Edwards is saying here in this quote is that command, the command to care for the poor is one of the strongest and clearest commands in the Bible. That again, it's undeniable, it's non-debatable. And I just have to say, after looking at this for a week now, I, am, I agree with him. In fact, some theologians have said there are around 2,000 references in the Bible which talk about this subject. And not only that, not only is that a ton of references for any given topic, but actually you see it uh, throughout the entire Bible. For example, there are commands to care for the poor in the, in the book of Moses or the books of Moses and the law. You see them in the Psalms. You certainly see them in the prophets, both major and minor. As well, you see them in the Gospels with Jesus' life and his commands. You see them in the book of Acts with the early church. Paul talks about it. James talks about it. The apostle John writes about it in his letters. I mean, it is literally from front to back in the Bible. And one book which addresses it very heavily is the book of Proverbs. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at what the Bible has to say about our attitudes and our actions towards the poor. And so our guideline to, to walk us through this will just very simply be three truths about poverty from the book of Proverbs. And the first truth we want to look at is this. According to Proverbs, there are multiple reasons and causes for poverty. Now, I touched on this a little bit a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the, the sluggard character out of the book of Proverbs, but I want to just go a little deeper here. You see, when you look at the Proverbs and even when you look at the Bible as a whole, what you see is that basically there are three main causes to poverty. And the first cause we want to look at here is moral failure, or you could say sinful behavior. Proverbs 10.4 says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 14.23 says, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 20 uh, verse 4 says, sluggards do not plow in season, so at harvest time they look but find nothing. Again, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about how one of the defining attributes of a sluggard was uh, that they are lazy that they refuse to work. And so certainly laziness is wrong, and according to Proverbs, it can and often does lead to poverty. However, though, laziness is not the only moral failure that can lead to poverty. Another one that is similar but different is lack of discipline. Proverbs 13, 18 says this, whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever he heeds correction is honored. So not only will laziness lead to poverty, but so will disregarding discipline. And what I think this verse is getting at is someone who is maybe too proud or too wise in their own eyes that they can't listen to or learn from someone else. 
And so maybe someone older or wiser comes along and they give you some advice or maybe they even rebuke you for an area in your life. But instead of listening to them, instead of taking their advice and learning from their rebuke, you ignore them. And what the Proverbs says is if you live a life like that, not only will it lead to shame, but it can also lead to poverty. Another moral failure that the Proverbs talks about is addiction and loving pleasure too much. Um, Proverbs 21, 17 says, whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. Similar to that, Proverbs 23, 20 says, do not join with those who drink too much wine or who gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness close those, close them in rags. You see, again, what these two Proverbs are getting at is that addictions and lack of self-control can and often do lead to poverty, whether you are addicted to drugs or alcohol or gambling or even shopping for that matter. Whatever it is, if you have an addiction or if you love pleasure too much, it will most likely in the end lead to poverty. And certainly as we think about our world and even the population, certainly addiction has been a major factor in that. Now, as we go on from here, you'll see that that's not the only cause or the only factor, but it certainly is for some. And so the first cause of poverty, according to Proverbs, is moral failure. Another reason or another cause, though, that we see in Proverbs is injustice and oppression. Proverbs 13, 23 says, an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice, New Living Translation says, uh, translates that verse this way, a poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it away. Now, what exactly situation or scenario the Proverbs is referring to here, I don't know. But it's clear from this verse that, that, that there's situations where the poor person has enough to sustain them, but somehow through injustice or oppression, it gets taken away from them. Not only that though, but there are other Proverbs which allude to injustice as a, as a, uh, as a cause to poverty. For example, Proverbs 11.26 says, people curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. In other words, we see here that another example of injustice and oppression is when someone hoards goods and resources that others need. Kind of like what some of you did with toilet paper a couple months ago, right? No, I'm just teasing you. But uh, usually the reason this is done, I'm not sure if this was the motivation for toilet paper, but often the reason you would hoard something or hold something back that you had uh, access to would be so you could drive the price up. And again, what the Proverbs is saying is that's wrong and that is injustice and oppression. Another verse which talks about oppression and even warns against it is Proverbs twenty-two sixteen: One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth and one who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. And so with this proverb, we see here that those who oppress the poor in order to gain wealth for themselves, that that too is a, another form of injustice and impoverty. And so uh, that would be another cause or another reason for it. The last one I want to point out here that we see from the book of Proverbs and again from the Bible is external calamities. Now Proverbs itself doesn't come out and directly state this, but it does again allude to it or assume it. 
And what I mean by external calamities would be things like natural disasters or war or death in a family or injury or disease or hospital bills or even mental illness. Any of this can be in this category of external calamities. Or even like with immigrants and refugees being forced to flee from your own homeland in order to find somewhere safe to live. So for example, uh, Proverbs 15, 25 says, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he sets the widow's boundary stones in place. Proverbs 23, 10 says almost the exact same, same thing, but this time it's referring to the orphan or the fatherless. There it says, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. Again, by mentioning the fatherless and the widow here, Proverbs is acknowledging that tragedy and calamity are also a cause for poverty. I know for me, this has been a real learning lesson as I've uh, helped out with and oversaw some of our benevolence ministries here at the church. I remember a couple years ago, I was uh, helping out in our food pantry and I met this lady uh, and, and she was sharing her life. And you know, as part of that, you have to fill out some paperwork. And by seeing her address, I realized that we were basically neighbors, that we lived like a quarter mile from each other. And so because of that, I felt this extra sense of responsibility and care for her. And as she began to share her story with me, it was just heartbreaking. She uh, was in her late 50s, maybe early 60s. Um, her husband had apparently died a few years earlier, really unexpectedly, and just were not prepared for that. You know, they were basically going paycheck to paycheck. And so they didn't have a lot of money saved up. They didn't have life insurance. Um, but not only that, she had some disabilities, which made it basically impossible for her to work. And then not only that, but she was also in the midst of getting sued over a car accident. And so between the lawyer fees and the cost of the lawsuit, this lady was basically left destitute. And the problem is, is when you have situations like that, once you get down so far, it gets really hard to climb back out, especially if you don't have friends and family who can help. And the thing was, is from her story and her situation, from what I could tell, none of it had anything to do with moral failure. It was just one tragedy and one calamity after another. I know we've also seen this a lot with our work with refugees over the years. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of stories I've heard where someone is, is sharing sort of their life story and you find out like they were a doctor or an engineer in the country where they were from. But then again, you know, war or political violence broke out and they had to flee for their lives. And so now here they are in the States and the only job they can find is a minimum wage job, uh, you know, loading a truck or working at a store. And so because of that, now they are really struggling financially and they need some help. And so as we think about all this, I just think that you and I, we, we've got to be careful. We've got to be fair about making assumptions as to why this person or that person is in the economic condition that they are in. I mean, it could be due to moral failure. It could be because, in fact, they are lazy. Or it could be because of injustice or calamity. And really, this idea of being careful or watching how we think uh, in terms of those who are in need brings us to the, the next truth that we want to look at, which is this. God expects you and I as his children, he expects us to be kind and loving in our attitudes towards the poor. You see, it's not enough just to realize and to acknowledge that poverty is complex and that there are multiple reasons and factors in it. No, God actually calls us, again, to be loving and kind in our attitudes towards those who are in need. 
Proverbs 17.5 says, The one who mocks the poor taunts his maker. One who rejoices at disaster will not go unpunished. You see, here's the deal. God is not okay with us making fun of or treating poorly those who are weaker or who are struggling financially. And in fact, he himself takes it personal when we do that. And the reason for that is because we are insulting his creation. We are insulting the very ones who are made in his image. And so when we make fun of or point out that homeless guy who's eating out of the trash can, or when we ridicule or get annoyed with that person in front of us using food stamps, God is telling us here, not only are you insulting them, but you are insulting me. You see, Proverbs 22.2 reminds us that those who are rich are not better than those who are poor. It says this, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. You see, when you and I, when we remember that, when we remember that we are but dust, that we are the creation, not the creator, that should produce a kind of humility in us, which causes us to treat others with kindness and love. And yet, unfortunately, that's not what usually happens in our world. And Proverbs realizes this and is very realistic about it. That's why Proverbs 19.4 says, wealth attracts many friends. But even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Similar to that, Proverbs 14.20 says, the poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. Now, again, the Proverbs here isn't commending that type of attitude or behavior, but it's just telling you, realistically, this is the world that we live in. And yet, if you and I, or if we we are to honor God, and even to honor the image of God in others, we have to be different than that. That's why the very next verse, Proverbs 14, 21 says, it is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. You see, God expects and God calls us to be kind and loving in our attitudes towards those who are weak and who are in need. And here's the thing. I think that this applies no matter what the reason or the cause is for the poverty. You see, I think naturally most of us have an easier time being gracious or extending kindness to those who are in need if the poverty came about through injustice or calamity. But we are often not that way towards those who are poor due to their own moral failure, whether it's laziness or addiction or whatever. You see, for some, when we meet someone who's in that kind of condition, we think, well, you got what you deserve. Or why can't you just get a job? I mean, come on, get a job or get off drugs, you loser. Right? Like, that's how we treat. That's at least, we, we maybe don't say it verbally. We might say it to a friend in the car, but, but at the very least, we are thinking those thoughts often. And what's behind those kinds of thoughts and attitudes is really just pride and arrogance. It's a lack of acknowledging that everything good in your life has come to you through the grace of God. I mean, you didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick the neighborhood you grew up in. You didn't get even pick the country you were born into. I mean, perhaps for you and for me, if we were born into different, a different family, or if we grew up in a different neighborhood, maybe we too would struggle with drugs. Or maybe we too would struggle with being lazy and irresponsible. You see, it's, it's real easy for us to take credit for things that we had no control over, that were ultimately good gifts to be stewarded, not things to make us prideful. 
I mean, it's kind of like LeBron James boasting about his basketball ability. I mean, don't get me wrong. He has absolutely worked hard and has crafted his skill, but the fact that he is 6'9 and has a wingspan of seven feet has nothing to do with him. I mean, I can assure you, even with all of the hard work and all of the effort put in, if LeBron James had my body and my height, you would never have heard of this guy, right? You'd be like, LeBron who? You see, again, so much of what we have is due to God's grace and kindness. And yet all too often we act like it's because of something that we have done. And God realizes this. He knows that we are prone to take credit for things that have nothing to do with us. And when he was in the middle of commanding Israel to care for the poor in the Old Testament, particularly during the Exodus and the giving of the law, God over and over again commanded Israel to care for the poor. And the reason that he gave for them to do that was because they were once slaves in Egypt, but that he had intervened. He had showed them grace and had rescued them from that state. Deuteronomy 24, 17 says this, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the fatherless, the foreigner, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I commanded you to do this. And in the same way, you and I, the reason that we should be gracious and loving towards those who are poor, towards those who are vulnerable, is because, even if it's because of simple behavior, is because we used to be slaves to sin. And yet because of Jesus, because of the kindness of the Lord, we have been now set free. And so when we see that homeless man who is in fact addicted to drugs, Instead of viewing him with disgust and contempt, we should view him with love and compassion. Because the reality is, is that apart from Jesus Christ and apart from the grace that he has shown us, that could easily be you or me. Again, God expects us to be kind and loving in our attitudes towards the poor. However, though, attitudes in and of themselves are not enough. In other words, just being kind or just having, you know, positive or fuzzy thoughts about the poor is not enough. Which brings us to the last truth we want to look at this morning, and that is this. God expects us to be fair and generous in our actions towards the poor. You see, again, it's not enough just to have kind and loving thoughts towards those in need. No, God expects something much more. He expects our thoughts and our attitudes to lead us into action. And so to look at this last truth some more here, I want to break it down by asking the simple question of why? Why be generous to the poor? Well, the first reason that we see here in Proverbs as to why we should be generous is because it honors God and it honors them. Proverbs 14, 31 says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. 
You see, we talked about this a little bit already, but again, the reason uh, behind this is because as humans, we are created in his image. And when we mock, as it says in Proverbs 17, 5, or when we oppress the poor, as it says here in, in, in verse, uh, chapter 14, we show contempt and disrespect towards God. And yet when we do the opposite of that, when we are generous to the poor and needy, far from showing contempt towards God, it actually honors him and brings him glory. And not only that though, not only does it honor God and bring him glory, but it honors and it shows dignity to those who are in need. And so that would be one reason as to why you and I should be generous. Another reason though, would be because it demonstrates that we are actually true believers. Proverbs 21, 25, it compares the sluggard with the righteous man. And here, here's what it says. It says, the cravings of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. You see, this verse here just assumes that if you have been touched by God, if you know him, if you are in fact righteous, then generosity will of course just flow from you. And we see this here not only in Proverbs as it talks about and compares the righteous versus the sluggard or the wicked, but the New Testament talks about this as well. For example, uh, in the book of James, in James chapter two, it says it very bluntly, in verse 14, James writes this, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, one, that makes you a jerk, but two, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now for some, this passage has tripped them up because they wrongly think that it's teaching salvation is based on works. But actually, all James is doing here is he's saying, he's not, again, he's not saying good works save you. He's just simply saying that they are proof that you have been in fact saved. The Apostle John says something very similar to this in 1 John 3.16. Now I know, you know, this is a Christian church. I know probably most of you in here know John 3.16. But do you know 1 John 3.16? Because if not, you should. Here's what it says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Probably the most sobering passage on this topic and subject is Matthew 25. This is where Jesus is talking about the end of the age when he's gonna separate out the sheep from the goats. And in there, we don't have time to look at it because it's a very long passage, but I would encourage you to, to study it this week because again, it is very sobering. But what he says there is that whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. And so again, when we look at what the Proverbs are saying, what James and John and Jesus are all saying, they're saying this, that if you have been truly touched by the love of God, 
If you've experienced the, the salvation and the grace of God, then it should result in a changed life. And part of what that changed life looks like or should look like is you and I being generous and helping out those who are in need. And again, to be clear here, this is not how we earn salvation, but it does demonstrate and it does prove and it does reassure you that you have in fact experienced salvation, that you truly are a child of God. And so that would be a second reason as to why we should be generous. A third reason though would be because God blesses us when we give generously. Now again, to be clear, I feel like I have to, you know, keep saying uh, to be clear here, but I need to be clear here. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. I mean, this, and this blessing here, if we are generous, is not necessarily a guarantee of financial blessing. Like, you know, you give a dollar, you get two back. Now, it might work out that way. And in fact, as we've talked about before in this series, if we went around and shared testimonies about how uh, we've been generous in our lives, you would in fact find out that often God does in fact bless financially because of that. But it's not a guarantee. But what is a guarantee is that if you and I, if we bless others, if we are generous with our resources, God will bless us later. And he will bless us certainly with treasures and rewards in heaven. Proverbs eleven twenty four says this, one, freely, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Verse 25 says, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Proverbs 22, 9 says, the generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. Proverbs 28, 27 says, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. As well, a very well-known passage on this, on this subject, uh, and it's actually a passage where God is uh, rebuking Israel for their lack of concern for the poor and vulnerable, is Isaiah 58. But even, even in there, as God is rebuking them, he also promises blessing if they in fact change and repent. Isaiah 58, six says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer you. Well, you will cry for help and he will say, here am I, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fail. You see, in all of this, God is calling us not just to throw money at the poor, but to throw our lives in with the poor. 
Again, look at this passage here, Isaiah 58, 10. He says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. You see, for some of us in here, again, let's just be honest. We uh, tend to be on, on the more upper middle class uh, church. Uh, that tends to be our demographic, right? Not exclusively, but we tend in that direction. And so for some of us with a lot of disposable income, it is relatively easy and painless just to write a check or to give a handout. And look, writing checks is a part of it and it's very important, right? Like you couldn't do this without that. But God is calling you and God is calling me to something greater and something higher here. Again, look at verse seven. He said, share your food and you clothe them. Again, this is referring to direct personal involvement. And yet for some of us, and I, I'll just put myself in this category, like I'm just gonna be very honest with you. This week has been very convicting to me. I'm honestly preaching to myself. And so if I come across maybe passionate or something, it's really just because I'm, I'm, the Lord has convicted me on this. For some of us in here though, our natural inclination when it comes to the poor is to turn away or to hide from them. You know, the kind of thing where we avoid certain gas stations or certain grocery stores around town. Or maybe we just don't make eye contact with that person on the side of the road. You see, the real sobering part of all of this is that, and the thing that I've been wrestling with all week is that yes, God promises blessing when we are generous, when we help out those who are in need, but he also says he will punish us if we are unjust or if we ignore the needs of the poor. And that brings us to the last reason as to why we should be generous, so that we won't have to encounter the punishment or the displeasure of the Lord. I mean, I just shared with you a minute ago, Proverbs 28, 27, but I only shared the first half of the verse, which says this, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. However, though, the rest of the verse says this, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Again, blessing if we give to the poor, curses if we ignore or close our eyes to them. Another one, Proverbs 21, 13 says, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. So with this one here, it seems like God is telling us that if we ignore the cries of the poor, he will ignore our prayers. He will ignore us when we cry out to him for help. And so these would just be four reasons. They're not the only reasons. I mean, you know, let me just give you another one for free. The main reason you should do this is because God commanded us to, right? And so there are certainly other reasons, but these are four here that Proverbs talks about. And so to close here, I just wanna talk for a minute and I will not be able to do it justice. And so give me some grace here, but let's just talk for a minute about how to do this. And if I'm being honest, the how is in many ways the hardest part. I mean, it's easy to talk about why we should do this. The Bible is very clear about that. But when it comes to the how, it gets a little more complicated. You see, I mentioned earlier that the church in general had been uh, pretty good and had a pretty good reputation for caring for the poor until the 20th century. And again, the reason I cited there was because of uh, some liberal mainline churches and denominations and the social gospel and all of that. But the other major thing that happened in the 20th century was that for the first time in any kind of major way, the federal government really stepped in and began to try to provide governmental help for those who were in need. Now, we don't have time to get into it, nor am I crazy enough to open that can of worms um, as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, you can ask your small group leader about that. But um, I, I only bring it up 
Because in some ways, it does make thinking about how to do this much more difficult. However, though, even with that said, I think that you and I, we still have a corporate and an individual responsibility in this regard. You know, corporately here at Limworth as a church, there are already quite a few ways in which we are seeking to help those who are in need. Things like our food pantry or our free medical clinic. Also our work with refugees and immigrants with ESL and tutoring would be examples of this. As well, we have often done things like giving out a free Thanksgiving meal or Christmas gifts to those who are in need. And so those would be ways that we are trying to help those who are in need outside of our own church. Internally though, with our own members, we have a whole deacon team which is dedicated to helping those who are in need. We have deacons who do financial coaching and we have a whole benevolence ministry to help those who are struggling financially. We also have deacons who do career coaching and help you with resumes and, and all of those kinds of things. We have deacons who oversee physical needs and help those with disabilities. And so again, there are, those are some ways that we are trying to help those both inside and outside of our church. Globally though, we've tried to, to help the poor through our partnership with OWR and, and our work with churches in Latin America and Asia, both to get the gospel to help meet those physical needs. For example, like just a few months ago when we were trying to raise money to help with hurricane disaster relief with those down in Latin America. And so again, corporately, there are already things that we are doing in order to try to live out and obey this command to care for the poor. And I just wanna commend you all in this. I mean, we could not do any of this without your, your generosity, without your ties, without your giving, without your volunteering. Right, like almost all of these ministries would fall apart. Uh, and in fact, almost all of our benevolence ministries are run and are led by strictly volunteers. And so thank you for that. Again, we could not do it without you. And, and if any of you would like to, to volunteer in any of those areas, you can talk to one of the elders or pastors. Now, now, not only is what we do corporately here important, but I also think each of us have individual responsibility as well. And when it comes to thinking about how to do this, I think it's best to think of concentric circles. And what I mean by that is that we should start to, as we think about how to care for the poor, I think it makes most sense to start with those closest to you and work out from there. And so with that in mind, the first place to start would be with your own family. Paul even talks about this in 1 Timothy 5.8. He says that if we don't provide for the members of our own families, our own household, then we are worse than an unbeliever. And so again, it makes sense to start with those closest to us. But from there, we should then begin to look out. Look out to those who are in our community, whether it's friends or people in our small group or people within our own local church. Paul uh, talks about elsewhere in Galatians 6.10, he says that as we have opportunity, we are to do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. And so again, looking to our own community here would be the next layer out. And then from there, I think it would extend into our neighborhoods and into the city of Columbus or wherever you live. And then from there, I think it's just as the Holy Spirit leads you, right? Like for perhaps for some of you, like what the Holy Spirit did with Doug, he's gonna lead you to do something globally. Like what Doug does with his ministry with OWR and helping orphans around the world. And so again, you and I as believers, we just have to listen to the Holy Spirit and be led by him. And as we do that, he will show us where he wants us to get involved and how he wants us to steward 
those resources. Now look again, I, I realize I'm not doing the how part justice, but I've already gone too long here. And so let, just to close here, let me share with you a portion of a sermon that was uh, preached in the 1830s by a Scottish preacher named Robert Murray McChain. Uh, I mentioned that I read all these biographies uh, early on in my with the Lord. And one little biography that I have is about Robert Murray McChain. And he, uh, we looked it up, uh, me and a couple members afterward looked it up. He died when he was 31, but he did all of this stuff for the Lord. But uh, anyway, let me share with you a portion of a sermon that he gave when he was teaching on the passage that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And here's what he said. Now, dear Christian, some are made in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Objection, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ may have said the same thing with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it as an excuse for sending even more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, and give freely to the poor, the thankless, and the undeserving. Christ is glorious, and he is happy, and so you will be. It is not your money that I want, but your happiness. Remember his own words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just these words. God, even just here for this, this end of, of the McChain sermon, Lord, for the exhortation to, if we want to be like you, which is the goal of the Christian life, is to be like Christ. If we want to be like you, then this area of our lives has to reflect you as well. And so, Lord, would you help us in this? Lord, by the power of the Spirit, would you enable us to be able to live out and to obey these commands? And God, would you give us open eyes and, and not just open eyes to see the needs around us, but would you give us open hearts and open hands to meet those needs? Lord, we need you in this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. I do hope and trust that you were able to, uh, to hear from the Lord, to uh, experience his presence. Um, why don't you go ahead and stand? We're going to close here with a final blessing. Um, there'll be members of our prayer team down here if, uh, if some of the pastors could join me. Um, if you have anything going on in your life that you would like prayer for, if you just want to talk to somebody, please work your way on down. But to close here with a final uh, benediction, a final blessing, it comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Amen. All right, we'll see you next week.